Now, I want to imagine with you that you and I are having a conversation in the lobby before or after the service, and the conversation goes like this. You ask me, hey, how's it going? And I say, fine. And then alarm bells start going off because you know that's not the correct church answer. Like, you're supposed to say good, right? I'm just kidding. I, you can, I hope you can answer that question however uh, you feel comfortable answering that question if someone says, how are you doing? But let's pretend you do want to pry a little bit further and you go, well, tell me more. What, what's fine mean? And you, I start to talk and I tell you about the week I've had and it is a doozy. And so this is all pretend, by the way, so don't start worrying for me when I share what I'm about to share. So then I say, well, after church, you know, last Sunday, Sunday was fine. M- Monday, I, I get up in the morning and I see that someone has stolen my car. My car is gone. Uh, someone stole it in the middle of the night. My laptop was in there. All my work, my work bag, all my work stuff was in there. Laptop gone, car gone, and it's not been recovered yet. It's been, you know, almost a week and no, no clue where that went. And so that was, you know, that was a bummer. And then uh, carry on and I go, and then, and then on Wednesday, I log on to my online, you know, banking account and I see a negative by several thousand dollars banking balance because there's been uh, a hack of some kind and all my money's gone and I'm overdrawn and I've talked to the bank about it, and they think they'll correct it, but it, it's going to take a few weeks to figure this one out. And you go, whoa, that's, that's crazy. And then, and then like, you, you continue, and you say, well, and then, like, later in the week, I was um, just publicly shamed on the internet. Like, I got canceled. I had the internet rage mob after me, and they were very upset about something I said in a sermon. And so I had, like, thousands of comments, angry phone calls to the church, and all these things happening, kind of a public humiliation kind of situation where people were coming after me. And then you go, like, you're just shocked at that point. Your eyes get getting wider and wider in the, in the conversation, and you go, man, I'm really sorry that you've had such a crazy week, but you said you were fine earlier. Like, I probably would have said, not good. Like, how, how are you doing? Not good for all these reasons. But you said, you're fine. So what's that all about? And then my response would be, in this imaginary conversation that we're having, well, I've got a secret. I, I know something in my, in my head and in my heart that made it to where I was fine, even though all that stuff was happening. So genuinely, I am fine. And then you go, well, I want to know more. Tell me more about this secret. Tell me what you know in your head and your heart that made you fine in the midst of a bad situation. And then my response would be, well, you have to wait for the sermon. So here we are. We're in the sermon. Here we are. We're, we're, it's, this, is, this is the sermon. Now we find ourselves back in the sermon. Uh, so Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23, Paul gives what he calls his secret something that he learned to being content in any and all situations that someone might find themselves in. Paul had this. Paul has this insight that he offers to the church at Philippi, telling them what it means to be content or how he could be content even in very difficult situations. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23, we're going to jump in right there and read right to the end of the chapter. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So the overview of kind of the verses we just read is that Paul is thanking the church at Philippi for their financial provision. Paul is in prison. Paul is either under house arrest or actually in a Roman prison cell. And in that situation, when he was not able to earn his own income, um, he relied entirely on the kindness of people that knew him and loved him. And so it wasn't like the taxpayers are paying for his food and medical treatment while he's in jail. This, that was not the scenario that the ancient world had for, for people in Paul's situation. He was, if he got sick and needed medicine to get better, it was going to be because someone gave that to him. Someone provided it for him. If he needed food to eat, that was going to be on the, he was relying upon the kindness of people who knew him and loved him. And so he's writing this, this letter. Part of the letter reasoning is to thank them for this gift. That Epaphroditus, this individual that, that came and visited uh, him and was there to minister to him, that probably likely collected uh, or brought this offering that they had collected for him. So there's two words that I want to use here that are, that are both words that describe God that will be kind of the framework for the rest of the sermon this morning. And it's these, these two words, providential provider, providential provider. And we'll talk about what each of those words mean, but that's going to be kind of the structure for the sermon. We're, we're focusing on God. We're, we're trying to get Paul's mindset about who God is what God does, and we're trying to get that secret, that lesson that he learned in our own hearts and minds. So we want to see God the way Paul saw him, and he saw him as the providential provider. So we're going to talk first about what does it mean that God is providential, or God's providence, what does that mean? And then we'll talk at the end of the sermon about God's provision, how he is our provider as well. So the word providence, this is from a commentary by Warren Wearsby, who's a great Bible teacher, uh, passed away a few years ago. He wrote about um, this letter to the church at Philippi, and he talks about the providence of God. He says this, the word providence comes from two Latin words, pro meaning before, and video meaning to see. God's providence simply means that God sees to it beforehand. It does not mean that God simply knows beforehand, because providence involves much more. It is the working of God in advance to arrange circumstances and situations for the fulfilling of his purposes. That if we believe in a prov God, God's providence, we believe that God is at work. God knows the beginning and the end. God knows how all of life will play out. There is nothing that could ever surprise God. And for Paul to understand God as someone who has, could help him to be content in any and all scenarios is really saying a lot because Paul's life was not easy. Paul went through a number of difficulties. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison, although you wouldn't be able to tell that except for the fact that he said that in the letter because it's a very joyful and encouraging letter. But Paul, in a letter that he had written previously to another church, the church at Corinth, in the letter that we call 2 Corinthians chapter 11, lists out the problems that he has faced in the name of serving Jesus. And the list is long, and we're going we're gonna to read it here. It says, five times... I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Like Paul is listing all of these problems that he's faced in the name of, of serving God, and none of us would blame Paul for venting a little bit. Like, and that's not necessarily what he's doing in 2 Corinthians 11, but in this church, this letter to the church at Philippi, all this stuff, he's already already experienced all these things, and now he's in jail, now he's in prison, Roman prison, right? None of us would say, like, any, we'd have nothing negative to say about Paul if he wanted to just get some stuff off his chest, like, my food is always cold, or there's never enough food, or, you know, I'm just, I'm all, I have trouble sleeping because I'm chained up to somebody. Like, how can someone sleep like that? That's very, none of us would blame him for venting a little bit, but he doesn't even do that. He says he's learned, he says that word twice, learned, and then he says the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and all that, that he, he can be content in whatever scenario, whatever situation life throws his way. When I read the word, the secret, in the title of a book or on the internet, I am, my, my, my skeptical natural response is like, I, I'm mentally crossing my arms. Oh, you know the secret? Okay, tell me the secret. It, it almost sounds like clickbait. You know, if you see this on the internet, like the, the doctors discover surprising secret to burning belly fat. Right? We see these things all the time on the list, like, you'll never believe, you know, fill in the blank, and it's a clickbait kind of thing. They really want you to click on it. Five surprising tips for, to improve your life, right? These are the things that we see on, on, on the internet, and, and if this was any, out of the context of Scripture, someone said, I know the secret to being content, like a skeptical response, it would not surprise me if you think that, but it's, this is coming from God's Word. This is coming from the scriptures, and and there's something powerful here that Paul shares with the readers and, by extension, with us today, that he knows the secret to being content. And thankfully, he says he learned it. Two times he says that. If Paul learned it, maybe we can learn it too. How can we also be content in whatever we go through? You know, some things come naturally and you don't need to learn them. You don't need to be taught certain things in life. You just, just, it comes naturally and lots of other things you have to learn. And Paul says this is something that he learned. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in, in um, the UK and England during World War II. He pastored a church in London during the days of the Blitz as bombs were falling on the city of London. He was a pastor of a church there and um, really interesting life, interesting character. He was a medical doctor before he became a pastor. And he writes about this passage, what, what, he, what he understands as the secret that Paul has learned. What does it mean to see God as a providential provider? How do we, we see God's providence and know that God is at work, that nothing ever surprises him? And he gives these seven ideas. He thinks the apostle's logic, he says, goes something like this in his writings on the church, on this letter to the church at Philippi. So I want to share this with you because I found this helpful. Seven uh, things. He goes, I think that the apostle's logic goes something like this. He said to himself, conditions are always changing. Therefore, I must obviously not be dependent upon conditions. 
Number two, what matters supremely and vitally is my soul and my relationship to God. This is the first thing. Number three, God is concerned about me as my father, and nothing happens to me apart from God. Even the very hairs of my head are all numbered. I must never forget that. Number four, God's will and God's ways are a great mystery, but I know that whatever he wills or permits is of necessity for my good. Five, every situation in life is the unfolding of some manifestation of God's love and goodness. Therefore, my business is to look for each special manifestation of God's goodness and kindness and to be prepared for surprises and blessings. Because, as God says in Isaiah 55, 8, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. What, for example, is the great lesson that Paul learned in the matter of the thorn in the flesh? It is that when I am weak, then I am strong. Through physical weakness, Paul was taught this manifestation of God's grace. Number six, therefore, I must not regard circumstances and conditions in and of themselves but as a part of God's dealings with me in the work of perfecting my soul and bringing me to final perfection. Number seven, whatever my conditions may be at this present moment, they are only temporary, they are only passing, and they can never rob me of the joy and the glory that ultimately await me with Christ. We sang that song as a part of the worship time waymaker that even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. Paul believed that, that even in whatever difficult situation he might have found himself in, God is at work even here. God's at work here. This is not a surprise to God. God was not taken by surprise by the situation that that Paul was going through. And then so because that is true, Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That God is his provider and whatever circumstances come his way, whatever life might throw his way, he knows that, the, that God with him is enough to meet the situation with his power. And that if he can trust in God and trust that God has a plan with even these things, he could be content. That was Paul's secret, that he could be content even in difficult situations because he had a big view of who God is and who God continues to be. So God is providential. God is the providential provider. So now we get to the second part of this um, statement about who God is as our providential provider. I find it very interesting that two of the most encouraging verses here in this passage we just read are all in the context of a conversation about money. I think that's very interesting. He says in, in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. These great comforting words come in this conversation about finances. Paul is thanking them for their generosity. You guys gave me this gift. You provided for, for my needs and I'm so grateful. And then he offers all of this encouragement. There's spiritual lessons to be had when you think about money. We sometimes will put Money or along with other things in our life in this category of, well, there's physical things, there's spiritual things, and there's not really an overlap between them. But it turns out some things that we think of as purely physical are actually spiritual as well. There's spiritual aspects to all of life. Think about sleep or your work or eating. You know, that each of these things, the Bible speaks to these and gives spiritual significance to each of these things that the Scripture talks about sleep as a gift from God. 
I think an, an act of trust in God, too, that when we lay down to rest, it's like this regular reminder that God's got the whole world in His hands and we don't have to have the whole world in our hands and we're going to rest while God is in control and God is in control and we can rest. Work, when we, when we work our job, no matter what you are doing for your work, your boss might be the government or might be, you know, the hospital or wherever you work. You might think of your employer that way, but ultimately for, for followers of Christ, our employer, our ultimate boss is always God. And so we're told that we need to work not just for man, but for God. And then eating even, that seems just like a purely physical thing. It's this, there's so much in the Bible about food, but one of the things that Scripture says is that whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, do it everything to the glory of God. And if all those things that seem just physical are also spiritual, it is very much true about our money as well. That when we think about our finances and our money, it has a lot to teach us about following God, and there's a lot of important spiritual lessons that Scripture, or that we learn through thinking about money and trying to think about money in a way that honors God. And Paul gives them two images, kind of two metaphors he offers to them thinking about finances. In verses 15 to 17, he talks about it, sort of this business or investment idea that he offers. He talks about the Philippians being in partnership with him in verse 15. And then in verse 17, he talks about uh, their fruit that increases to their credit. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That they're making sort of a spiritual investment. They're partnering with the Apostle Paul, almost like you would if you were purchasing a part of a business. Like, I'm going to buy into this business, and I hope to make a profit from this business. And they're partnering with the Apostle Paul and investing in Paul's work. And this is a helpful concept for us, that, that the way that Paul says, this benefits you. There's a, I seek fruit that increases to your credit. I'm not, I don't want the gift necessarily. That's not my motivation. But what I want is for you to be blessed by having the fruit that increases to your credit. Because a lot of times when you, people get suspicious when you talk about money in a church, that, that, and, and I think this was probably the case for Paul too, and he's writing about finances to this church at Philippi, people might go, hey, you want something from me. That's what this is about. You want something from me, and that's why you're talking about this. And Paul here is saying, no, it's not that I want something from you. I want something for you. I want God to bless you in every aspect of your life, including here. And he says that there's sort of a dual purpose here. Like the, the, the money that they gave for, towards the Apostle Paul and his ministry had the dual benefit of blessing Paul and enabling him to continue his work, but also blessing them. That there, there's, this, there's ministry results, certainly, but also spiritual benefit for them. And there's this dual purpose. The Bible even says this in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts 20-something. I can't remember off the top of my head where it is. And I should have wrote it in my notes, but I didn't. But it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Have you heard that before? We don't think about that very often. It is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, if you think of two people... One person is benefiting from someone's generosity, and one person is giving and being generous, that it's more blessed, it's actually better to be the person giving than the person receiving. Like there's more blessings there. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That is profound. 
um, Paul is saying they're making fruit. Uh, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You are storing something up. There's some kind of spiritual credit system, so to speak, is kind of Paul using this image here, that they're making investments. And like Jesus says, they're, they're storing up treasures in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about Christian generosity, it's this idea that storing up treasures in heaven, making a temporary investment into something that's eternal. So you think about it like this. This is a, uh, not to brag or anything, but this is a Monopoly $500 bill. I know, I know. Um, and I, I want to pretend for a moment that we're in the you know, church service and the COVID days are far behind us and we're passing the offering bags and it's the offering time during the, the church worship service. And I pull this out of my pocket. Like I've got this $500 Monopoly bill here and I just start doing this little snapping noise, and I really want everyone's attention as that offering bag comes my way, and I go, you know, put it in here, and I'm like really trying to draw everyone's attention, like, hey, look at what a big spender I am. Look at how generous I am, everybody. Watch this. And I put it in there. My guess is you have several thoughts in your mind if that happened in real life. Like one is that, hey, you're not really supposed to brag about what you're given, right? But also that has no value outside the game of Monopoly. That's completely worthless. Like I'm I don't know why you're so impressed with yourself putting that into the offering bag. Like it has, once the game of Monopoly is over, that ceases to have value. It's worthless. In fact, I just printed this on the printer before the service here. You can print your own Monopoly money. Did you know that? Now you know. Um, So imagine that, right? This is completely worthless once the cover goes back on the box of the game, right? And the game is over. It has no value. In a very similar way, our resources in this life have no value in the next life unless we invest for eternity, unless we store up treasures in heaven. And, and Christians have this call to be, to be generous, to give towards the cause of Christ, to give to the local church and to missions and to alleviating poverty and serving and blessing the poor. This is a, this is a call that God places upon us to be generous and that when we do that, when we give towards the cause of Christ, we, we store up treasures in heaven. And, and that money then goes into eternal investments that outlasts this life. We leverage this very temporary thing to accomplish something that lasts for eternity. The final image that, that Paul gives out of these two images, one is this investment idea. The other one is a sacrifice. He says in verse uh, 18 that he's received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and, a pleasing, to God, and pleasing to God. It's this image of, so this Old Testament sacrificial system of someone leading a lamb or a, um, you know, an ox or something to the, to the sacrifice and, and giving something that represented part of their livelihood. This is their net worth tied up in these, these animals. It's like making a financial gift and taking it to the, the priest who would then sacrifice this animal or maybe an incense offering or something and it, this aroma that goes up to God that it's an act of worship, it's an act of sacrifice. And we don't do the sacrificial system anymore. Jesus was our perfect sacrifice and brought that whole system to a close with his death on the cross. But the closest thing I, I think we have to giving a sacrifice in that way is when we give financially. It represents all the same things. It's an act of worship just like that as well. The church at Philippi had probably made a big sacrifice in, in the sense of having to give up something to be able to give towards Paul, that it likely cost them a lot, that, that Paul was, um, in, in verse 19 perhaps, talking about the size of the gift, that they, he could tell that they had really 
put a lot into helping to support him. And when you give like that, when you give in a sacrificial, like very generous way, it, it's, it's easy to think, if I give, will I have enough? Like, if I give, am I going to have enough for my family and for me? And I think to that unasked question, but perhaps what they were thinking, Paul answers with verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Generosity is one of these ways that we practice um, regularly. We have these regular reminders about growing and trusting God and having this opportunity to practice regularly. Hey, I'm going to trust God now as I give. And it's one of these things that God does and teaches us all kinds of important lessons. As we wrap up uh, this series in the book of Philippians, I've really enjoyed studying this book together, this letter written to the church at Philippi. It's been encouraging for me to put these sermons together and to be able to deliver them on, on Sunday mornings. There's been so many important takeaways and lessons from our study. We've been talking about the unity that we have in Christ and the way that unity needs to be maintained and, and something that we all kind of work together to maintain that unity. And one of the ways that we do that is through this humbling of ourselves, you know, laying our egos aside and being able to, to embody what Jesus did for us, where he laid aside you know, all these things that he was due and, and humbled himself and became completely humble, even to the point of dying on a cross for us. Last week, we talked about this kind of battle for the mind and believing what is true and, and how that God, as we follow Jesus, he demands even obedience at the level of our thought life and in our hearts and shows us what to do with our worry, that we can turn our worries into prayer. And so many other great lessons from the study in Philippians. And kind of one of the big themes is this theme of joy that's all over the place in the letter, that even in spite of difficult situations, it's possible to have this, this sense of joy and hope in spite of our difficulties. I want to close our study in the book of Philippians and close the sermon with the words from Philippians 4.23 because it's an important reminder for us and it is how we have a relationship with Jesus. It's how we grow in our relationship with Jesus. These words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time uh, in our study in the book of Philippians. It has been so good, Lord, to, to dive into this together and we praise you and we thank you for um, this time. I pray that you'd bless each and every person in this room, those watching online. Help us to be people who uh, trust you more, that we see you as the providential provider, that we know you, first of all, as our Lord and Savior, and that we walk with you in a way where we know that you are our provider, you are the one who is in control, and that we can trust you. We can be content. We don't need to be cowering in fear and worry, even though so many in the world around us are. Lord, we can be content. We can be um, okay when troubles come our way, and we thank you for that. I pray that you would um, help us to apply these truths to our hearts and lives, and we thank you so much for this wonderful time together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.